0: For a reading of Holy Scripture this morning, we turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah 31. I think in the bulletin I have, we'll read the first 34, but we'll read the, the whole chapter. The end of the chapter is a wonderful promise too about God. Sanctifying even the grave At the same time saith the Lord, will I be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith the Lord, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness, even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. The Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, Yea. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Again I will build thee, and thou shalt be built, O virgin of Israel. Thou shalt again be adorned with thy tabrets, and shalt go forth in the dances of them that make merry. Thou shalt yet plant vines upon the mountains of Samaria, the planters shall plant and shall eat them as common things. For there shall be a day that the watchman upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise ye and let us go up to Zion unto the Lord our God. For thus saith the Lord, sing with gladness for Jacob, and shout among the chief of the nations, publish ye, praise ye, and say, O Lord, save thy people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country, and gather them from the coasts of the earth, and with them the blind and the lame, the woman with child, and her that travaileth with child, together a great company shall return thither. They shall come with weeping, and with supplications will I lead them. I will cause them to walk by the rivers of waters in a straight way, wherein they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim is my firstborn. Hear the word of the Lord, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him, as a shepherd doth his flock. For the Lord hath redeemed Jacob, and ransomed him from the land of him that was stronger than he. Wherefore they shall come, and sing in the height of Zion, And shall flow together to the goodness of the Lord for wheat and for wine and for oil and for the young of the flock and of the herd and their soul shall be as a watered garden and they shall not sorrow any more at all then shall the Virgin rejoice in the dance both young men and old together for I will turn their mourning into joy and will comfort them and make them rejoice from their sorrow and I will satiate the soul of the priests with fatness, and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel, weeping for her children, refused to be comforted for her children, because they were not. Thus saith the Lord. Refrain thy voice from weeping, and thine eyes from tears, for thy work shall be rewarded, saith the Lord. And they shall come again from the land of the enemy, and there is hope in thine end, saith the Lord, that thy children shall come again to their own border. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself thus. Thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised. As a bullock unaccustomed to the yoke, turn thou me, and I shall be turned. For thou art the Lord my God. Surely after that I was turned. I repented. And after that I was instructed. I smote upon my thigh. I was ashamed, yea, even confounded, because I did bear the reproach of my youth. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a pleasant child? For since I spake against him, I do earnestly remember him still. Therefore my bowels are troubled for him. I will surely have mercy upon him, saith the Lord. Set thee up waymarks, make thee high heaps, set thine heart toward the highway, even the way which thou wentest. Turn again, O Virgin of Israel, turn again to these thy cities. How long wilt thou go about, O thou backsliding daughter? For the Lord hath created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, as yet they shall use this speech in the land of Judah and in the cities thereof, when I shall bring again their captivity. The Lord bless thee, O habitation of justice and mountain of holiness. And there shall dwell in Judah itself and in all the cities thereof together, husbandmen and they that go forth with flocks. For I have satiated the weary soul and I have replenished every sorrowful soul. Upon this I awaked and beheld, and my sleep was sweet unto me. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. And it shall come to pass that like as I have watched over them to pluck up and to break down and to throw down and to destroy and to afflict, so will I watch over them to build and to plant, saith the Lord. In those days they shall say no more, The fathers have eaten a sour grape, and the children's teeth are set on edge. But everyone shall die for his own iniquity. Every man that eateth the sour grape, his teeth shall be set on edge. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt which my covenant they broke although I was a husband unto them saith the Lord but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days saith the Lord I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God And they shall be my people and they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them saith the Lord for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus saith the Lord, if heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the city shall be built to the Lord from the tower of Hananael unto the gate of the corner, and the measuring line shall yet go forth over against it upon the hill Gareb, and shall compass about to Goath, and the whole valley of the dead bodies, and of the ashes, and all the fields unto the brook Kidron, unto the corner of the horse gate toward the east, shall be holy unto the Lord. It shall be not plucked up, nor thrown down any more, forever. In the light of that word of God, we specially consider this morning Lord's Day 34 of the Catechism. begins by asking what is the law of God which we recited this morning with explanation and then asks how are these commandments divided into two tables the first of which teaches us how we must behave towards God the second what duties we owe to our neighbor what doth God enjoin in the first commandment that I as sincerely as I desire the salvation of my own soul, avoid and flee from all idolatry, sorcery, soothsaying, superstition, invocation of saints or any other creatures, and learn rightly to know the only true God, trust in Him alone, with humility and patience submit to Him, expect all good things from Him only, love, fear, and glorify Him with my whole heart so that I renounce and forsake all creatures rather than commit even the least sin contrary to his will. What is idolatry? Idolatry is instead of or besides that one true God who has manifested himself in his word to contrive or have any other object in which men place their trust. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, when we consider the first commandment, we must do so in the manner that the Heidelberg Catechism does by noticing that that commandment is special. The catechism indicates the special place of that commandment by considering it in connection with the entire law of God. It doesn't simply expound the first commandment nor does it have a separate Lord's Day to set forth the law of God, its place and its function in its entirety, but combines them. The special place of the first commandment is also indicated when this commandment, which does not explicitly refer to idolatry, but rather idolatry is reserved to the second commandment, is treated here with the first commandment. Together, this indicates that the first commandment is something that relates to the entire law, so that what we say about it, we say about the whole law. If one, for example, takes the position that there is no place and function of the law of God, for the New Testament Christian, then he must reckon with that position in light of the first commandment, which stated positively is simply love God. What one says about the whole law, one says about the first commandment and vice versa. It represents that law. And so we're going to consider that this morning in our first point, that this first commandment really represents the whole law, and we're going to tie those together. But there's another aspect to the law of God and our salvation that also needs to be addressed. And this relationship is brought out in the treatment of the catechism itself. The catechism, if you look, links obedience to the first commandment and what God commands there with something that we ought to desire to do as sincerely as we desire the salvation of our own soul. In other words, there's a connection of the law of God to our salvation. The connection of the law of God to our salvation is a matter of the Gospel. We pointed it out last week. That one may not separate the law and the gospel, even though they are technically different, have different places and functions in the preaching. They may not be separated. They go together. That has to do with the fact that the law has to do with our salvation, as I just pointed out. But notice also the connection between obedience to the first commandment, which is essentially love, to faith. Now, we know that from a certain viewpoint, love and faith are different. They're distinct. And yet, here too, they may not be separated. And we are even taught that with regard to justification. A mistake we can make is that because justification is by faith alone without works, We may put it this way, justification is by faith alone without love, because works are works of love, works are obedience to the law of God, and the law of God is love. We're justified by faith alone, and yet a mistake that's made time and time again is to have faith alone by itself, is to posit faith that is alone which our confessions don't allow us to do. Faith is never alone. Faith is always accompanied with love. It's never apart from or separate from love. And that connection is brought out right here in the explanation of the law of God. Notice when it explains love, it explains it in terms of knowing and trusting God. And anybody that has been taught the Heidelberg Catechism, immediately recognizes that those are the two main activities of faith. Faith is not only a bond that unites us to Christ, but faith is a certain knowledge and assured confidence, trust. Hmm. There's a connection there, isn't there? Not only that, but we also ought to see that there's a connection of this to the covenant. We link salvation and the covenant. We identify them, actually. And I would like to point out this morning to you also that connection and why the covenant cannot be a conditional covenant, but rather is a covenant as it's set forth in our baptism form, which is why this is a wonderful Lord's Day to consider in connection with baptism. We're going to consider love the Lord thy God, which is the positive enjoinder of the first commandment under three points God's perfect law, God's covenant promise, and then finally our covenant life. We would do injustice to the law of God, we would do injustice to the covenant of God, and we would do injustice to our salvation. If we would not emphasize that loving God, loving God as our God, is a matter of law and commandment, we must do that even though the gospel sets forth the reality in a number of places that in a real sense we are delivered from the law. States that we are no longer under the law. And even sets forth the reality that the law itself cannot make us righteous. In other words, we may not conceive of the Gospel, our salvation, the demand to believe, or even the calling to love God in any way that takes away from the demand of the law, and especially the demand of the first commandment. The Bible, the Scriptures, even with those strong statements about being delivered from the law and no longer being under the law but under grace, never allows us to do that. In fact, usually within eyeshot of where statements are made like that, for example, in the book of Romans chapter 7, it's brought up again, Romans 5 and 6, Galatians 3 and 4, many other places within eyeshot one will see the apostle also spinning and making sure that we do not understand what He said in such a way that abrogates or does away with the law as God's command. The point that must be made here is loving the Lord thy God is demanded. It is commanded. This is something we must do. Now this is already brought up in the earlier Lord's days do not really need to belabor the point. It should be obvious. We may even rephrase the question that was brought up earlier. Since we are delivered from our misery merely of grace through Christ without any merit of ours, why must we still love God? Now, for some reason, when it's put in terms of why must we still do good works, many even supposedly in an attempt to save the gospel, defend the gospel in Christ, object. Must. They don't like the must. But change the word good works to simply love God. Because that's what good works are. The catechism goes on to lay out very clearly what good works are. Good works are not first and fundamentally those works that we do toward our neighbor, which is how we often couch them as. Good works are those things that Scripture sets forth whereby we help and assist our neighbor, even the undeserving neighbor. But no, the Catechism says they are those done according to the law of God. And now let's remember that the first commandment funnily sets forth the whole law of God. There's a reason why Jesus says that the whole law is summarized by one great commandment. Love the Lord thy God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, All the rest of the commandments in the first table are simply variations of love the Lord thy God. And the whole second table of the law, loving thy neighbor, simply demonstrates our love for God. Time and time again, we are reminded that you cannot claim to love God if you hate your neighbor. Why is that? Because that's fundamentally how we show forth we love the invisible God. So love the Lord thy God is the chief of the good works that we must do. And therefore I remind you, it is the chief work of God in renewing us by His Holy Spirit. It is the chief work of grace in the child of God, in the justified, regenerated child of God. Now do you understand why one cannot take away the must? And the fact that love the Lord thy God is a commandment and the law of God. In fact, what it should do for the child of God is actually enhance and make him see how great that demand of the law of God is and why it is and shall always remain part of what we call the perfect law of God. Scriptures always refer to the law of God as perfect. Now that which is perfect is never done away. If you ask why do the Scriptures refer to the law of God as perfect, the answer is twofold and perhaps threefold if you look at it. First of all, the law of God is perfect because the law comes from God who is perfect. When God comes to us and says, love the Lord thy God, that is not something arbitrary or God simply dreamed up, thought would be a good idea, maybe, for those whom He created to follow and obey. But it's a reflection of God Himself. It has to do fundamentally with God and is an expression of the perfection of God. Secondly, and closely related, it's because it is an expression of the will of God. Try that next time that you want to minimize the law of God or take away the must. What you're speaking about is the will of God. That which God delights in. That which God has decided and determined shall be. This is the expression of God's fundamental desire and will for man whom He has made. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. And it matters little now whether it is the Lord thy God because He has saved and redeemed us, or in a more fundamental sense that He is the Lord thy God because He has made us and created us. And simply now, because we have been redeemed by grace through Jesus Christ, that fundamental will of God doesn't go away, doesn't change. In fact, one may say it is even further cemented and grounded as the fundamental will of God for us. It's one thing to say that I As a creature God has made even a creature who has fallen into sin and forsaken God must love God and so when I fail to do that whether as a little baby or as an old man whether I fail to do that in any way I deserve to be cast away from God forever condemnation because that's what we say All men, as they are created in Adam, are condemned. We learned that already in the first couple of Lord's Days of the Catechism. We read that this morning in the baptism form. That even our little children are without their knowledge condemned in Adam. Simply because God is our God as our Creator and Maker. But now that God is my Savior, God is my Father, who has begotten me again unto a lively hope, who has regenerated me and adopted me as His children and heir, child and heir. Why would that take away that must, that demand? It only makes it greater. Now I have an even additional reason calling, I even understand more about why I must love the Lord. Because He is my God now in all those other senses. That law of God is perfect then because it comes from a perfect God. It is the expression of His perfect will. But don't, under, don't underestimate or don't forget about the fact that this is indeed the purpose of God for us. And that purpose is perfect. We're going to tie this in a little bit with the covenant, but this is perfection. If you want to know what perfection is, righteousness is, it may be put in terms of loving the Lord thy God, with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's what it means to be righteous. And that's the end of God for man. And never does that go away. Christ didn't take away that must. Grace doesn't take away that must. Salvation doesn't take away that must, nor does the gospel. Any gospel that takes away that must and demand injures and harms God and his Christ and the Holy Spirit. Now, part of the reason is because, and we move on, that there is a connection between this law of God, our salvation, and the covenant. Have you ever asked yourself, why is it that even though the commandment comes to us in a negative form, we understand rightly That it's positive as to its character. Thou shalt have no other gods before me means love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Everybody understands that. And not only that, but when we are saved, this is what we are saved unto. Everybody understands or should understand that our salvation doesn't merely consist of God forgiving me the many, many times I have not loved Him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but that God's salvation of me delivers me from that sin and evil in such a way that I in fact love the Lord thy God with all our heart, soul, and strength. Our salvation consists of that. Would we ever look at someone who hates God, who hates God with their heart and mind and soul and strength, and say, well, they're saved? Now, I understand, in our old man, that's certainly true. And that must be emphasized and preached also, our depravity, our total depravity in our flesh. But may we, and should we ever present that in such a way That my salvation of God through Jesus Christ is of this manner that God forgives my sins and then leaves the rest up to me. Whereby I may or may not in the end love God. Now that's done. And you must understand it's done from two different perspectives. Some present the gospel of salvation this way. That God does His part. God promises certain things and even works certain things. Oh, He gives gift of uh, faith. But now, whether you're saved or not depends on whether you accept that gift and use that gift rightly, whether you fulfill the condition of loving God. If you don't love God, then love, God's not going to love you in return. Or after rejecting such a concept or gospel, the gospel still can be presented this way. Oh yes. God saves us. God freely gives us faith. He works that faith. He works the active faith so that we know and trust in God. And chiefly, we trust in Him for the forgiveness of sins. And since salvation is not conditional and does not depend upon you, it has nothing to do with the law of God. It has nothing to do with loving God. In fact, you really may preach what we must do. Otherwise, you're preaching man, preaching a gospel of man. And of course, what you say there has to do with the covenant. None of that is true from either perspective. And the truth of the matter is brought out in the book of Jeremiah that we read and why we read it. You see, the law of God has to do with the covenant, and how the covenant is presented. And in Jeremiah 31, it's put in an unmistakable way so that there's no excuse to preach either a conditional covenant or preach a covenant that has no place for the law of God and loving God, at least not as part of our salvation and renewal of us. God brings up the law to His people And notice a couple things. First of all, God is speaking to a people in captivity. The prior chapter was actually to the captives in Babylon. They're already in Babylon. And God has made plain why that is. God has destroyed Jerusalem. He's broken down the walls of His own temple. He's filled the valley of Kidron with the dead. The blood of the slain ran through the streets of Jerusalem. And God says, I did it. I am the one who called Babylon in. And I did it because of your idolatry. I did it because you did not love me. I did it because you forsook me. That's the kind of God I am. Don't ever underestimate the demand to love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we need to We need to see that as part of the gospel. That's gospel. That's an important part of the scriptures and the prophets. That must be preached to us. When we come for baptism and we see many wonderful things in baptism, let us not forget our God is a God who will not allow us or anyone to worship idols. And if you think you get a free pass on that because you're a member of the church, just like Children of Israel thought they did because they were children of Abraham and part of Israel. Guess again, if we worship idols in our homes, if we worship idols in our church, and understand what idolatry essentially is, it is to know, to trust in, and serve someone and something other than the one true God. Perhaps to serve and worship a God who doesn't punish our sin. Just looks the other way because after all, we're elect. We're Israel. We're the church. Perhaps even doing that while we're pointing out all the idolatry in other churches and people. Look at those people. Look at those idolaters. And then we're busy pursuing money and pleasure. We rarely have any time for God and church. Which, by the way, is idolatry. Don't ever think we're idolaters simply because we don't replace God. That's rarely done. That was rarely done in Israel. The problem wasn't that they had replaced God with Baal and Ashtoreth and all those, but no, they served both. They were doing both, which is why the commandment is put the way it is. Don't have any other gods beside God that is in addition to, alongside of. And the Word of God comes to us and says, we do that all the time. And the law of God comes and says, when you do that, He will destroy you. And if you think He won't, read the Scriptures. Read what He did to the nation of Israel that He took out of the land of Egypt, as He points out in the law. Whom He redeemed. Whom He gave David. Whom He made covenant promises to. God took that nation of millions and destroyed them. Leveled Jerusalem. And it was awful. So awful that even the nations recognized it. What kind of God is this? And the answer is a holy and a righteous God. Who when He says love me, means it. But then after doing those things, God also sends the prophet to remind them that God has made an everlasting covenant. That even though God did such awful things that He said He broke the covenant, He does. God reminds them it's not really broken. It's an everlasting covenant and because of that I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to forgive your sins. But notice in Jeremiah 31 that this doesn't simply include the forgiveness of sins. In fact, the forgiveness of sins is mentioned last. God says, I'm going to bring you from all the places that I drove you in my wrath and my anger, I will bring you back. You will turn because I will turn you. And you will march because I will march you. And about the law, God says even that He's going to make a new covenant. Now it's not entirely new. It has a new form, new fashion. Christ is going to come. But notice how God puts that. And we know He's talking about the covenant, not only because it's mentioned, but God uses the covenant formula time and time again, which covenant formula we know because we just read it. The covenant is the promise of God to be our God and we shall be His people. Now the covenant isn't the promise as such. The covenant is when God is our God and we are His people. And it's not just when God is our God. But the idea is that when God is our God, we also will be His people. Which is that we obey Him. That we follow Him. That we live with Him. That we love Him. And the whole sad of history just proved that Israel could not do that on their own. They couldn't do that in fulfillment of some sort of conditional covenant. When we read in the baptism form, it's our part. That's not what it means. But that is actually included in the promise. When God says, I will be your God and you will be my people, God is promising, oh yes, He will punish us and chastise us even send us off into a far country in captivity sometime. He will give us over into our sin sometime. But He will also use that in everyone with whom He makes that covenant to turn them, to bring repentance. And God says, I will write My law in or on their heart. So a Christian, a regenerated Christian is someone who has the law in their heart, on their heart, in, an, in a very special way it's in or on there by faith it's in or on their heart because they believe in Christ and that is where the law is fulfilled that means it is now impossible for the child of God to look at the law simply as something written down by the finger of God on two tables of stone so it's indelible but sees Obedience to the law of God and loving God as the very fulfillment of God's covenant promise. Now you see how that changes? Love the Lord thy God. It's not simply love the Lord thy God who is God because He is your Creator. But neither is it simply love the Lord thy God because He forgave your sins. But it's love the Lord thy God who will turn you who will bring you to your knees in repentance, and who will write that law of God in your own heart so that you love it. Not despise it. Not hate it. Not do away with it. Not say something is evil or bad about it, but says fundamentally that's how I must be. That's how I must live. That's what I want to be. Of course, Jeremiah is talking about repentance and conversion there. And that's part of our salvation. And it's part of God's covenant promise. So did you ever ask yourself why the commandment isn't simply love the Lord thy God? Well, I just pointed out why it's given negatively. It's given negatively because the chief way we violate it is we have other gods beside God. And imagine we love God. Well, I love God, but I love my idols too. So the commandment comes negatively. But then when it comes positively, why it isn't simply, love the Lord thy God. That is indeed the command. But it is, thou shalt. Even as it is, thou shalt not have any other gods before me, the command is, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. And the reason is because that's a promise. This is God's covenant promise. It's part of God's covenant promise. It is God saying, this is what it means, that I will be your God and you will be my people. You will love me. This explains in part why the commandment is explained the way it is. Yes, loving God and believing in God are two different things. Faith and love are two different things. Faith and love must be distinguished very importantly because we are not justified by loving God. Justification, forgiveness is a declaration of God, and it must be received by hearing. You can't do anything to be justified. Justification is God speaking, and you can only hear Him speak through faith. So faith and love are different, they must be distinguished. We are justified by faith alone without love, and yet they may be separated because the command to love God is, as the Catechism points out, the command to know Him rightly. That's faith. It is the command not simply to love Him with all my heart, but to trust in Him, to submit to Him. That's faith. It teaches us something very important, doesn't it? Love is the fruit of faith. I pointed out last week. Love is the fruit of faith. It follows from faith. It's what faith outputs. It takes something in and it outputs something, and that's love. And so much are they together that the commandment is put in terms of faith. You cannot love God unless you believe in Him, unless you know Him and trust in Him. This is why now in my third point I want to make this point briefly. If now, all these other things are true, loving the Lord thy God is part of the perfect, indelible, unchangeable law of God that comes from Jehovah the I Am. But the I Am, Jehovah is also the one who makes His covenant with us. Which covenant is that He turns us, changes us, renews us. Then do you not see How it's impossible to be saved. It's impossible to experience salvation. It's impossible to be in the covenant and experience the covenant. It is impossible to fellowship with God or experience fellowship with God apart from works. Or to put it another way, apart from loving God. You see that, do you not? Why is that? Well, for us who have been taught covenant theology our whole life, it should be simple. And if maybe you don't understand it, I'll make it as simple as I can. The covenant of grace, God's everlasting covenant of grace, God's unilateral, unconditional covenant of grace can be put in terms of what it is. And we have all learned that as far as what it is, Not now how it's established, but what it is, is that it's a covenant of fellowship and friendship with God. It's a relationship. It's a relationship wherein God is our God and we are His people. That's what the covenant is. It's a relationship of friendship and fellowship, or shall we say, it's a covenant of love of love established in grace, of love established only in our Lord Jesus Christ, but a covenant of love. Is that strange for us to understand? Whereby we understand that the great picture of the covenant is marriage? Who would deny that a marriage is a covenant of love? Well, what's love? What is it to love God? It's the first commandment. (laughs) Do you not see? How whom one God saves, one God redeems, God renews according to his covenant, must be and is brought to love the Lord his God because that's the fellowship of the covenant. Something good for us to be reminded of this morning as we gather and see the sign of God's covenant. Covenant of grace so that he even establishes it with children but a covenant also that consists of God loving us so that He is our God, and our God in such a way that He delivers us completely from sin, from the guilt of sin, the shame of sin, by forgiving our sins, and from the power and dominion of sin by renewing us. Which renewal is that we love Him. Do you understand now that third part of the form? And what it means when it says that this is our part, what it's saying is this is your side of the relationship. In a relationship, there is mutual love, a God who loves us and the people who loves Him. And that's what's signified and sealed in baptism, as our form points out. So love the Lord thy God amen O lord our god we thank thee for thy word we are sorry for our sin our selfishness and our pride and how evil and wicked it is when we do not love thee with all our heart mind soul and strength and so forgive us our sins in thy great mercy and grace and turn us change us convert us day after day so that more and more we love thee, our God. And give us, too, the great hope of perfection that day when both body and soul we shall love thee with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and live in that thankful love forever and ever. Amen.